Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I'm super thrilled this afternoon to be uh, joined by Patrick Cook Deegan. Patrick, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you, so you are in in NorCal. Are you? Are you based out of NorCal, right? Yeah, I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Nice, nice. All right. So, um, so you're part of Project Wayfinder. And that's the right way to say it, right? Are you are you the director yeah. or? Yeah, I'm the founder and director. I mean, it's it's my baby. Perfect. All right, so your baby. So, to to get it started, we're gonna we're gonna let you take the majority. But could you just tell us a little bit about your background and and how you got to be where you are with Project Wayfinder? Yeah. So I grew up uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, like right next to the Chesapeake Bay, um, and I went to a mix of public and private schools growing up. Um, I graduated from like a large traditional public high school in Annapolis, Maryland, and um, it was probably sixty percent African American and like thirty five percent white and five percent Asian and Latino. And um, yeah, I mean, in high school, I played like a lot of sports. I played like six or seven sports, and I was big into football and lacrosse mostly. And um, got recruited to play sports. Uh, at Brown and like even going into Brown, my interest is basically in high school education because, you know, my high school, I was like good at school. I got good grades and I could do all the things, but it didn't feel that meaningful. And it felt like there were big questions I had as a person that weren't being answered by school. And this was right um, at kind of the birth of the charter movement in Washington, D.C. in like the late 90s. And so... I became really interested in, like, how do you do school differently and how do you, you know, answer the questions that adolescents fundamentally have at that age, which school for me just wasn't addressing. Um, So I went to Brown. I uh, at first started studying education and public policy, and I played lacrosse. And then after my sophomore year, I kind of just felt this emptiness and and had achieved a lot of things I was supposed to achieve, but I didn't feel, like, really that good inside. And so I quit lacrosse and traveled around the world for about two years. Um, And I went to Southeast Asia and lived with some dudes in Turkey and went backpacking in New Zealand. And the trip, like, really changed me. One, in terms of, like, my own sense of purpose. And two, just being more deeply exposed to, like, global inequities in education. Um, And so I came back from that trip, and my first education project was riding my bicycle through Asia about 3,000 miles to raise money to build a school there. Um, And then I came back from that trip and started speaking to high school students around North America about, like, how the trip had changed me, the importance of education. And essentially, I didn't really use that language back then, but essentially it was about how to help students wake up and find their own sense of purpose. Um, And since that time, I've been working with adolescents. So that was, you know, almost 10 or 15 years, like fundamentally around the question of, like, how do you live your own life? How do you support others? How do you live a life of purpose? And and how do you navigate the things in life that you feel like you have to do or should do versus the ones that, you know, your heart really call to your heart? Right, right. So did you ever, did you ever go back to Brown? So I went back to Brown two years later, and I did manage to graduate. Nice, nice. And and when and this is just more of a, a general question. When you yeah. 
when you made that choice to give up lacrosse and and go travel, how how was that received? Like it, you know, with your family and your friends. Um. Yeah. So it's with my family. My father is like a physician, and he worked abroad on human rights and you know working in uh, villages all over Latin America. So it's kind of following his footsteps a little bit. So my family at I mean, I, I'm sure they weren't psyched I was going to Burma and getting, you know, tailed by government officials. But, you know, they weren't really going to stop me. And then on the friend side, that part was much harder because I came back to Brown having been gone for a while and having been really changed personally. And I essentially made a whole new group of friends. Um, so most of my, like, good friends in life, 80-plus percent come from post that trip. Right. Um, so it was like a pretty big, you know, I mean, everyone's life has a lot of before and after markers, but I would say that was the, those years away and then coming back were the biggest in terms of shaping the rest of my life. Right. Right. I mean, cause most people, I guess, wouldn't make the decision when you're at one of the most prestigious universities in the country playing lacrosse to, you know, just give that up. So that's, so that's interesting. So then how, how did that trip and your work then shape into Project Wayfinder? Yeah, so I came back from that trip and, you know, like I said, I spoke at schools. And then, you know, one of the things I realized is like a privileged, you know, white dude from Maryland was like, well, a lot of, you know, a lot of the kids, my, like, dudes on my football team, like, they don't have money to go to Laos or Burma or the Congo or wherever. And so, like, the thing that had changed me the most, which is going abroad, um, is a rather privileged thing to do. And so, you know, I saw that, and I was like, well, I want to do something about that. So I started a program called Transform Abroad that specifically took low-income youth in the U.S. and gave them a chance to go on, like, a summer abroad and service trip. Um, So we worked with kids in the Mississippi Delta and all over the country, and so... I basically, that was the first program I did in the U.S., and then um, I, a few years later, I started working with this organization called Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, and they teach mindfulness to students, which I'd done a lot when I was in Asia, and um, I, it totally also changed my life, and so I did that, and I started teaching at five or six different high schools, teaching mindfulness um, to students, and then... Uh, one of the things I saw is that, like, mindfulness really helps you, you know, have a more centered approach to your life and and more calm and awareness, but it doesn't really help you figure out what to do with your life. And so I, like, searched all over the country. I was like, where's the curriculum for high school students that isn't cheesy, that isn't boring, that is real and relevant, that helps students like dive into their own lives and what they want to do with their lives. And I don't mean like career development, like check the nurse box or the like construction box. I mean like what kind of life do I want to lead? And so it didn't really exist. And I searched for a while. And so I got a fellowship to the Stanford Design School to basically design this for two years. So I spent two years with 30 different designers um, you know, from a lot of different diverse backgrounds, asking people that had developed a sense of purpose and worked with youth, like, how did they wake up? How did they develop meaningfulness? 
And so the curriculum that we have now is a year-long program that we do with 4,000 kids at 25 schools and after-school programs um, that basically starts with self-awareness, who am I and what do I care about, and then moves to like world awareness, like how does the world work and what are some questions I have about it. And then third is purposeful action. So like what, what do I do about it and what purposeful projects can I do to, um, to address some of the issues that I've seen. Wow. So, so where are those uh, 25 schools around the country? Are you yeah. kind of primarily in a, a certain areas or are you kind of all over? We're kind of all over. So next year we'll probably have 50 to 60 schools in 11 countries and 18 states. Um, we have some like hubs like in the Midwest around Chicago and Michigan in the San Francisco Bay Area and the Northeast. Um, but we don't really pick our schools geographically. We more pick them by, you know, are they interested in the type of curriculum we have and do they have, you know, the type of program or school that is going to be supportive and conducive to our curriculum being implemented well. Right. So, so you're more looking for the right cultural fit of a school as opposed yeah. to geographically where that would be. So are your programs more geared towards students or are they more geared towards teachers? So they're, I mean, they're geared towards both. So all of our teachers that teach our curriculum have to be trained by us in person. So it's either a two-day training where we come to your school or a four-day training where we have summer institutes, one in June at Stanford and one in July at Brown this summer. And so the idea is that, one, you get trained so you know the curriculum, but two is that, you know, you can't teach anything you don't know. So, for example, I suck at chemistry, and, like, you would never want me to be a high school chemistry teacher because I don't know chemistry. So if you're a teacher teaching about meaningfulness and purpose and you can't articulate that to your students, then they're probably not going to absorb a lot of it either. So a lot of it is um, about your own experience with it. And then it's also a how does it work and how can you do it with your students. Um, but ultimately, we train teachers and mentors. And we have after-school programs that do it with their students. And then we provide ongoing coaching and support to you know, make sure it's going well and answer questions and, and be a support system. But it's, it's ultimately the teachers and schools and mentors and after-school programs that are implementing the curriculum. And, and how do you, I, I guess the first question I want to ask is, how do you yeah. measure the success, you know, of the schools and the students that, that the program is in? Like, what are your metrics? Yeah. yeah, so we built our curriculum off of 10 core traits, so, for example, one of them is um, purpose, another one is gratitude, another one is resourcefulness. And so we spent 18 months really thinking about these 10 core traits. Um, and so we have all of our students do a pre and post survey um, on a, a scale designed specifically for adolescents to measure those 10 traits. So, for example, there's a well-known gratitude scale that we adapted for adolescents and they will do a pre and post. So this year we had 1,500 students do the pre-survey and, and they're all doing the post-survey now as the school year ends to see how did they move up on those 10 traits. Right. And then 
how are you measuring or, or how, how are you seeing those traits then affect, you know, the kids academically, socio-emotionally and, you know, yeah. within the school itself? Yeah, I mean, it's easy. I think it's easier for me if I tell you stories than if I like. Yeah, that's perfect. Broad, you know, broad strokes. So, I mean, one example is I went to a school. We teach at a school in Sacramento um, that's just started. That's like an opt-in. It's it's like an almost like an in-district alternative school. Um, and one of the young women I went to observe a class, and you could tell she was like really into the curriculum. Um, and it's a, this piece is called uh, Navigation Markers. So it's about navigating your own life and like what are the things that help you navigate in your life who are the people what are the practices what gives you inspiration what do you do when you get sad so basically like a personal toolkit and so she did this and I could tell you know when you just like watch a student doing something you can tell they're into it so I'm watching her and I went up and interviewed her after and I was like so I you know I didn't tell her I made the curriculum I was just like kind of a random guy so I don't know what she thought but I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And she's like, oh, well, I love it. And she's like, well, these are all the questions I have about my life that I never get to talk about in school. And this is what I actually use and take home in my life. And she told me this story where one of our exercises really focuses around developing and practicing a sense of gratitude and that had been like a really big shift for her this year. And she told me this story of like, you know, she comes from like a working class family where I think her dad is a night security guard and her mom is like a nighttime um, in-home care person. And so she doesn't get to see them much. And, you know, she doesn't spend much time with them. And for a while she had been like kind of like grumpy and resentful at them because she never got to be around them. And in the practice of, like, doing this gratitude with herself, she started to feel a sense of gratefulness to the fact that they stay up all night and work to support her. And they started talking about that more and why they do that and why they want to support her. And they ended up doing this thing called family time, where now, like, they have two two two-hour periods a week where they actually just, like, hang out with each other, um, which they hadn't done before. And, like, don't have screens and don't hang out and actually connect. And she said that it's transformed her relationship with her parents because it used to be like, oh, they're always gone and I'm upset about it. And now it's when they're gone, she's like, oh, that's so amazing that they're like working to support me so I can have this life. Um, so that was like a powerful story for me to hear. And, and we hear that a lot, that it changes a lot of uh, students' relationships with their own sense of gratefulness or understanding of the world around them. Right, and and you know, you said purpose, resourcefulness, gratitude. You know, what you have a list of ten, but you know, what yeah. are there two or three that you really think, man, these stand out? These are the real, you know, ones that really make the biggest impact. Yeah, I think it's a. I think, number one, it would be gratitude, like, over and over with our students. That's what we hear, and we really emphasize that as a big one. And a lot of the research um, coming out of, like, youth purpose developers, there's a woman named Kendall Cotton Bronk who got her Ph.D. at Stanford and now teaches at Claremont Graduate Institute and shows that there's a huge linkage between having a sense of gratitude and having a sense of purpose. Um, and that they kind of go hand in hand. So I would say 
uh, gratitude is one. And the other one, I would say, is like a sense of like, I can do itness. Um, because a lot of the curriculum is designed around students designing their own projects that mean something to them. And frequently, you know, I mean, you might have seen this in your classes, it's, it's like project time and students are supposed to like pick some project out of like this magical hat that they're somehow going to care about. Um, and so we really have a lot of activities around how do you design a project that's going to be meaningful to you and then how do you do it because it's probably not going to work exactly how you thought and how do you push through that and then make it something that you're proud of. And so a lot of the students that we work with have projects that for the first time I would say they're like really proud of and felt like it was theirs from beginning to end. And that really creates a ripple effect that then the next time they have a project, they have a sense that A, I know what a meaningful project feels like and B, I can do it. Um, and a lot of the research shows that once students tap into that sense of like their first purposeful project, that the others become, it's a thing that they can tap into over and over again. So if I had to say two, I might say a sense of like resourcefulness and purposefulness and then gratitude. Right. And, and do you notice, I mean, in, in the stories and the things that, you know, you've talked to and the kids you talk to, do these things, you know, carry over into their, you know, other classes, their math, science, social studies, English? Are, 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 is there a carryover? Yeah, I mean, so some of the classes that we teach are actually embedded in other classes. So, like, we have one class in, outside of Sacramento, another school, that teaches it during English class. And we have another a teacher in Hawaii who teaches um, our curriculum integrated with a class called Finding Poetry. And so we find that, it, you know, it's pretty powerful, especially English seems to be the one that it's linked the most to. Because, um, you know, a lot of English is understanding yourselves through understanding novels and other characters. So I, I think... You know, I don't have, like, hard data because it's our first year, but there are a lot of schools that we work with that more than the individual subjects, it helps shape the student culture at the school and the relationships that they have with teachers and the relationships they have with each other. And so I think that just is, like, a foundation for better learning and a better sense of belonging and safety at school, which, you know, all metrics show make for a better learning environment. Well, yeah, I mean, and school, school culture and, and safety in schools is becoming uh, in shorter and shorter supply. And we know that, you know, there's, there's a lot of kids and teachers, including myself, that we are more and more concerned with our safety by the day and by the year. But um, when you have students that are going through the program, are, are there a lot of kids that give pushback to the teachers or, or you know, are there reasons why kids maybe might not want to be a part of the program? Um, well, for example, we teach at an after-school program in uh, Palo Alto, which is all first-generation, mostly Latino students um, from all over the peninsula down here. And I think often, like I, was, I hung out with them this weekend, and often at the beginning, they're, they kind of roll their eyes and they're like, oh, man, another, like, another one of these curriculums. 
and you know another social emotional learning curriculum, another thing where I'm supposed to talk about something else. And so I was with this dude, Angel, this weekend, and he was actually giving a presentation. And he was like, you know, no offense, Patrick, but like when I first heard we had to do your curriculum, I was like, oh man, this is going to be real boring. And then he proceeded to tell this story about how it totally changed his life. And he had a lot of mental health issues. And this curriculum, more than anything else he'd done, really dove, I think, beneath the surface of how we often treat mental health issues into like, why do you exist and why, why is your life meaningful and what are you here for? And by excavating those deeper whys, it often answers the other questions that he had. So to answer your question, I think that like at first there's resistance around doing anything like this because a lot of it is cheesy or not well done or, you know, the teacher doesn't seem to care, so why should they care? But we found pretty across the board that when the teacher really cares, then the students buy into it because it, it looks and feels different from most curriculum. So, you know, it's hard for the listeners to see, but maybe I can send you some shots of it. But the curriculum's designed on, like, pretty beautifully, and we had 12 different product designers work on it. So it feels really good, and it looks different from other curriculums. So I was with this other woman, young woman this weekend, who was like, yeah, the reason I try the curriculum is because it looks like the people that designed this tried really hard to make it thoughtful. And that makes such a big difference. And people feel that. You know what I mean? If, like, you go to a restaurant and the food, like, looks like it was thrown on the plate, you're probably going to go into it being like, man, this probably isn't going to be that good. But if it's beautifully presented, there's, like, a thoughtfulness behind it that you think, oh, well, they probably took care into making it as well. Was that, was that something you set out to do, you know, when you were designing the curriculum? Did you kind of have that understanding that the way it's packaged and the way it's presented really mattered? Um, no. So, you know, I'm mostly like an experiential educator by background. So mindfulness education, taking kids abroad, uh, wilderness education, and, and you just learn it by doing it and then talking about it. So, you know, you hike for five miles and then you talk about it. Or you do a 30-minute meditation sit and you talk about it. Um, so I didn't come in uh, with any of these skills. But when I went to Stanford, they paired me with a full-time product designer who is really talented. And her lens through everything is like, well, how do, you, how do you make it beautiful and accessible? And so for the two years that we developed the curriculum there, we worked full-time in tandem. And so you know, a lot of the credit for how it looks and shapes and feels goes to her for having that lens. And as we did it over and over, as we tried it with students, it didn't take me long to be converted to it. I just didn't have any of those skills, and, and I still don't, but we have a team that does. And so because of that, I saw, I was like, oh, students, students love this. You know, I have one... Uh, dude that I work with named Chris Rudd, who was in the fellows class with me, who works with um, mostly like youth in the juvenile system in Chicago and, and all over. And he came with me when we prototyped it at the school in Japan. And um, we handed out the papers and, and the curriculum. And I was like worried because I was like, I've never done this before. And the kids were just silent and spent like four or five minutes like looking at it and reading it. And he came over to me. And he was like, man, I've never seen kids be so quiet when you give them a piece of paper. And so... To me, I was like, oh, it's, 
it's really powerful how it's designed and how it's presented. Um, and so the last three years has been a really big learning curve about how to do that well. But I'm totally sold on the importance of it. Yeah, because I, I and I'm and I'm sure it makes more sense to me now because I was looking through your Instagram again last night and and how the pictures, you know, when you go to your to your whatever your page or mm-hmm. and you scroll down your pictures, the the dotted line connects, yeah. like on the pictures as you're looking at them and it and the first few times I looked at it, and it, I didn't notice it, but then last night I was really like wow, it's incredible, the, the, the detail. And it looks like somebody who, you know, it looks like it's been professionally done and you really care. So I guess kind of step back, how did you, how did you get the fellowship at, at Stanford? Was that something you had planned or did that just come to be because of the work you were doing? Um, yeah, so I didn't even know about it. I didn't even know what the D school was. I didn't know what design thinking was. I just knew it was some like fancy word that people used. And then I was with my friend who's an educator and I was telling her about, you know, I'm really I'd been working on once I stopped doing mindfulness, I spent three years really thinking about like what would a purpose based curriculum look like? And she was like, Oh, well, that sounds like a perfect project for this fellowship at the D school. And I was like, well, what's the D school and what's this fellowship? And I looked it up and they basically, the idea of the project is they take capable people that have an idea for something, but they don't really know what form it's going to take. And then you use the design thinking process to help figure out what the project will be. Um, And in my case, I got paired with a full-time lecturer and product designer. And so I went there with like this idea, like I knew that I wanted to have students have a curriculum where they felt like they knew themselves better and like felt like they belonged to the world and felt like they could do meaningful projects in the world and they had some sense of how to do them. That's what I wanted students to be able to like the skills and the feeling of it. And I know that you can do that in the summer in experiential ed and I knew that I hadn't seen a curriculum that could do it. And that's all I kind of knew. And then through this process, Um, I brought in probably 20 or 30 people to work with me on it for one day to six week long stints. Um, And out of that grew this curriculum. So, I mean, at this point, you know, it's had like dozens of hands on it and dozens of minds. And and one of the things that I really like about the process at the D school at Stanford is that it's very collaborative. Um, And so they really encourage you to bring in a lot of different people and even people that you might not think know anything about what you're doing, because sometimes those people are the ones that have the most creative ideas. Right. Right. So, so kind of getting to some of the stuff you, you offered on, on your website, you have uh, your student toolkit. So what, what yeah. can a student find in that toolkit? Uh, yeah, great. So it's, it's going to be 30 exercises that are approximately an hour long, um, one to three hours long, actually. Uh, depending on your situation, meaning, but it's designed specifically for one hour long for 30 weeks of school, and it's themed like in in different chunks and different units. So the first theme is self-awareness, the second one is world awareness, and the third one is purposeful action. And then within those, we have two different units. So for example, for self-awareness, we have who am I internally? So there's a lot of like internal navigation tools 
and then who am I externally? So, and then, and then when we move through the curriculum, the idea is to learn first more about yourself than more about the world and then put that into practice. And if you look at the definition of purpose, it's something that's meaningful to you and consequential to the world. And so we spend these, the first two thirds of the curriculum diving into those two so that by the time we get to a project, you have a sense of like who you are and what you care about at a deeper level and something in the world that moves you, not something in the world that you just think you should care about because, you know, it seems bad. Um, so in this toolkit, each of the lessons are broken down with like one question. So, um, like one of them is called uh, navigation markers, which I mentioned before, which basically has all these different pieces of navigating your life. Like who are the important people in my life? How do I know I'm on the right track? How do I know what to do when I get sad? How do I know what to do when I'm feeling inspired? And so students go through and answer some of those questions so they can use them as markers in their own life. Right. All right. So then what would be in the teacher toolkit? So the teacher toolkit is, is basically the same as the student toolkit externally facing, but then each of those lessons comes with a facilitation guide that's done on Google Drive on, on Squarespace so that you, you get instructions on how to do it. And that includes um, like an intro activity, like a fun activity, how to discuss the activity, how to do the activity, and then what, we call them experiments, but what experiments students can do when they go home um, about like each of the lessons that they did. So, so basically it's like a back-end support system to make sure that um, teachers have the guides to make sure that they're doing the activities well. Perfect, yeah, that's, that sounds awesome. So, um, so then you, you said if, if schools want to use this or teachers want to use this, they have to either have you in for a two-day on-site or come to your summer institute. So, so what, would, what could teachers or a school expect from those, either your two-day or your summer institutes? Yeah, so they're both experiential. and Like I just led one uh, last week, and we go through six of the activities um, in our two-day training. So on the first day, we facilitate them to you. And then on the second day, you're facilitating them either to students that you bring in or to other teachers. Um, so, I mean, things you can expect are, one, that it's experiential and that, like, you experience the activities. Two is that you have, a ba like, a backstory and understanding of, like, meaning-making and purpose-based education, so some of the research. And then three is time to talk about, like, how do you need to relate to your students as a mentor and a coach as opposed to like your teacher hat um, for our curriculum to work? And then we give teachers time to like figure out how they would implement it in their like real life classroom. So it's a mix of like backstory, experiential hands on, and then thinking about how the implementation would work well at your school. Um, having, you know, had eight years of experience in teacher professional yeah. development and those stuff, yeah. do you get some pushback on people for the more experiential style? Because I felt like a lot of the training I've been through as a teacher has been 
almost the opposite of experiential where it's just, you know, this is how you do this, this is how you do this, this is how you do this, and there's not a lot of that experiential co- component. Uh-huh. I guess my question back to you is, like, is doing the style you just explained fun or not fun to do? It's, it's not fun. Exactly. So we try and make it fun, and usually teachers love it because – like humans like doing things. They don't like sitting there at some boring PowerPoint with like 14 bullet points on it being like, oh, and if you see here in sub-subject C74, this is how feeling X works, you know, and you're sitting there and I'm like, wow, this is boring. So right. uh, we try and make it fun and experiential and uh, and I, it generally works. I mean, we've had like one of the schools we trained last year said it was the most meaningful personal development they'd had in their first five years of the school. Um, so, you know, and our guides are very, very well trained. They come from, like, really diverse backgrounds. They're, like, some are artists, some are teachers, some are facilitators, some are classroom teachers. Um, and so, like, we pick our guides really carefully and train them well. And the whole point is that you're supposed to experience what you're students experience which is supposed to be meaningful and transformational um in a, in in that experience as well so i wouldn't say we get any like i haven't really i've done this like 10 or 20 times now i've gotten very little pushback i we've gotten a lot of excitement and sometimes teachers end the day and they're like man i'm tired but tired in that like good way right right okay so you said you're doing two summer institutes this summer yeah so we have one at Stanford from June 28th to July 1st at the design school. And then one, we have one at the School of Professional Studies at Brown University from July 17th to July 20th. Nice, nice. And I, I want to say on Instagram I saw that there's still, is there slots still open for both? Yeah, there's still like like five to ten slots open for for both of them. And And how many... These are, these are a little smaller events, right? There's not a ton of teachers at these events? Yeah, there's, we'll have 50 to 60 at each of them. Nice. So, it's, so that way most of the teachers, you're, they're getting a lot of, you know, kind of one-on-one time and really getting trained up. That's good. So. Yeah, and we have 10, like 5 to 10 staff there. So it's very high ratio, and, and it's pretty impactful. And I think we, or we have the ability based on that ratio to answer a lot of questions. Right. All right. So, yeah. So if, if people want to connect with you or they want to um, learn more about Project Wayfinder, what are the best ways that they can do that? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way is on our website, just projectwayfinder.com. And then we have a, um, you know, inquiry form on our website if anyone has questions. And Alex, who's our community creator, who's our, our school lead, she answers all of those emails. So, you know, if you're an educator and you have a question like, how does it work? Uh, what do you do? What schools do you work in? Like, a lot of them are answered on the website. But if, if they're not answered there, then feel free to shoot Alex an email through that inquiry on the contact page on our site. And then it's just, um, on Instagram, you're just Project Wayfinder, right? Yeah. And are I think you... With, without the R. I think it's Project Wayfinder with no, or with no E. So it's Wayfinder without the E and the ER. 
Perfect. Perfect. And any anywhere else on social that they can find you? Yeah, and, check you and out. Twitter too. So the main the main social channels were on our Twitter and um, and Instagram. And my wife Samantha does all of our accounts there, and so she's pretty active on it. And she has a real strong background in social emotional learning, and um, you know tries to make the Instagram feed different from other Instagram feeds just like we have our um, curriculum try and feel different from other curriculums so we try and you know embody it and practice it in all the different ways that we interact with people awesome that sounds amazing so um, I really appreciate your time but but to wrap it up and just kind of tie a bow on it what do you what do you want the legacy of Project Wayfinder to be <sighs> uh it's a big question. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, man, our vision is that every youth across the planet, regardless of race or where they were born or socioeconomic class, has the access and tools and, and the practical toolkit to like live a life of purpose and meaning. And so like the legacy we would love to leave is changing adolescent education so it answers some of these deep questions of like, what am I doing on earth? Why do I exist? How can I help other people? Like, what are my many purposes here? And how are we going to, you know, put the earth back on its feet? Because right now we're tilted pretty close to this edge. And, you know, unless there's enough people that are really thoughtful about how we come back into balance, I don't think we're going to get into balance. And so I would love us to be like a small part of contributing towards a global movement of thinking how to be thoughtful humans that can take care of the earth, which is what humans are going to need to survive. Absolutely, man. So like I said, I appreciate, uh, I know when we started talking, you're, you're on a busy schedule and I, I know you got more things coming up, but Patrick, uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast with me today. Cool. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me.